Let's open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we examine this section. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have uh, spent the last several weeks talking about the birth of John the Baptist and the prophecies that went in there, and we're now going to look at the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to be at Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And it, so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We're going to look at this little section here because this one has been under controversy for several millennia. People will tell you, well, there was never any taxation of Caesar. There was never any gathering of the people. We're going to look at some of this. We're going to look at some of the history that is out there uh, because we want, to, we want to follow through with this to understand where we're at. So it said that came a decree from Caesar Augustus that all should, the world should be taxed. We do know that Caesar Augustus did create taxes for his people uh, and that he did this every 14 years during his rule. He decreed that everybody would pay, would be given a census and have to pay their taxes on their census. So this is a statement that is very true. The only controversy that comes in was that did they have to go to their homes, their, their home cities. And there are many people, many historians that for years and decades since I've been a Christian have said, no, that never happened. The only problem is recent, recent discoveries have found records in Egypt that said that everybody in Egypt had to go back several times to be taxed in their home towns. Uh, and so now that is a, not, is that absolute proof that Luke's story is true? No, but it tells us that it did happen. And it probably, if it happened there, it happened elsewhere. So we do know that it was required. Now, how would you feel if you had to go back to where you were born to be taxed? Uh, for us as a very transient uh, world in our day and age, that would be a big deal. Uh, that means every time I was taxed, I'd have to go back to California, which I'm glad to be away from California. Uh, you know, and that would mean other people would have to go back to other places in the world. And this is what happened. And they did this every 14 years. And this word for taxed actually means to be registered for tax. <laughs> so it's not that they had to go pay their tax. They had to go back home to register, be enrolled, have their names on, on books. And we thought those were new things in our day and age. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. These things have been going on forever. Government wants to know who they're supposed to tax and where you live and where you are so they can come and get you if you don't pay your taxes. And this has been the case always. And so here we see Joseph having to go back to Bethlehem. Now, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, which is in the north part of Israel. Bethlehem as the crow flies, is somewhere between about 90 miles away from Nazareth. The only problem is, to get straight there, you'd have had to gone through Samaria. 
And in that day and age, the Jews did not go through Samaria unless they absolutely 100% had to. And even then, they didn't go that way. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, you had to have an extreme emergency that meant that you were going to go through Samaria. Now, Mary being great with, with in, in her pregnancy and, and literally says big in her, <laughs> in her days, <laughs> which means she was, you know, at the end of the stage. They might have gone through Samaria. They may have taken the shortest route to make it easy on Mary, but that's doubtful. The caravan they traveled most likely would have gone down the River Jordan and over to Bethlehem, or they'd gone all the way out to the Mediterranean, came down the coast highway, and came over to the Mediterranean. So they, she could have been traveling as much as 120 to 150 miles. And for especially you, you women who have had a child, just imagine you're, you're nine months pregnant, it's almost time to give a baby, and you're, and you're being told, uh, we're going to take a 120-mile trip. Uh, yeah, probably by foot. Now, we, we have these pictures of Mary riding on a donkey. They probably could not have afforded a donkey. When Mary, next week, when we talk about her, the, the naming and the circumcision, the gift that she gives on a purification are two turtle doves. That was the gift of a poor person. She probably had to walk the entire distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem, unless somebody took pity on her in the, in the caravan and let her ride, in a, in a, a ride, a, ride a horse or a camel or something. But even at that, think about that. If any of you have read a horse or, ridden on a horse or a donkey or a camel or anything, anything like that, those are not smooth rides, and I can't imagine being pregnant and being on even those type of transportation. Uh, my wife didn't like being in the car <laughs> at that point. I can't imagine what it would have been like for, them, for her to have to be. But she's making this long trip at the end of her pregnancy. And it's very interesting that he says in Luke, it says, and this taxing was the first made by Cyrenius, the governor of Syria. In other words, Luke tells us that there were more than one. History tells us that he taxed them every, he registered them every 14 years. So it's amazing when we look at the detail in the scriptures. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry when I give you all these stories that, that blow, your, blow your image of Christmas away. <laughs> you know, but Mary probably wasn't riding a donkey to, to this place. They did not have that kind of money. And she was very pregnant. And they made it to this place. And they had to go to their own city. Now, why would we, why would God have them go to their own city? We, we have to go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that says, And you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. The prophecy of God was that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, if you understand, that's the city that David was born in. This is the city where the story of Boaz and Ruth happens, is Bethlehem. Now, even in Jesus' day, Bethlehem was a thriving metropolis of a couple hundred people. <laughs> now, it was not a huge city. It was outside of... of uh, uh, Jerusalem by, by about 50 miles or so and it was known as a place where shepherds kept their flocks <laughs> it was not a big city 
It was not even well known by most people. And yet God said, this little town is where the Messiah is going to be born from. And you think about this. God likes doing things with little beginnings. We, we see this over and over. If you've been walking with God long enough, what changes has God made in your life that started very small? What changes has he done in churches that started out as just small, simple steps? You know, many food in ministries start out with people just giving out water and, and staples to people and then turn into a big ministry. The, these places that have done recovery ministries have started out with just, we're reaching out to one or two people and end up being a big big ministry. These churches that get started start out with just a, a missionary or a pastor coming and say, I believe I need to start a church here. Our church many, many years ago started just that way. They came here and, and started a church with a handful of people and it stayed running since. You know, we need to be able to understand when God is asking you to do something small, be ready to do it. Because who knows where it's going to go? We don't. And for most people, if God told us what we were going to do before we started, we'd probably go, not me. <laughs> now, I listened to lots of pastors who said, people go, well, did you ever expect to be a pastor? And most of them go, no, I used to be on drugs and, and, and running around with all this stuff. There was no way. If you'd have told me I was going to be a pastor in my teens or my 20s, I would have told you no way. Now, I wasn't quite that, that person. I knew going early on that I was going to be a pastor someday. But... What kind of church was I going to run? How big the church was going to be? That wasn't in my mind. I just knew that God called me to be a pastor. What has God called you to do that you may think is too small? You know, the problem that many of us, especially in America, have is we want to start at the top of the, top of the circuit. Especially in our generation now, our kids don't want to start at the bottom of the, of the cycle and be paid low incomes. They want to start at the top, be paid high pay, and go up from the top. The only problem is you don't go up from the top. <laughs> and yet we have so many young people who want to start at the top and don't want to put in the time and effort to learn. How many of us as Christians have that attitude? God, start me at the top. I want to I be at the top, God. I don't want to start at the bottom. If you read any of the biographies about our great leaders and, and people, they all start at the bottom and start with small things. You know, I, I, you all know I like uh, George Mueller. Now, George Mueller just reached out and started grabbing whatever orphans he could help. And before long, he's feeding thousands and thousands of them in an orphanage. I don't think he ever planned on doing a thousand-person ministry to orphans. What is your call for God? What, what is he asking you to do? Are you ready to step out and do the little things? Jesus said, those that are faithful in little will get much. And what I have learned over the years in management is I want to make sure people are good with little things. If, I, if, I can't expect, if they can't get a small job done, there's no way I'm going to put them in charge of the entire, the, the entire place. God does that with us. He puts us in little steps. Mary and Joseph, they're going to give birth to this child. He's the Messiah. That's going to be scary enough. And then, whether they remembered or not that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, I don't know. But God's going to make sure that they get to Bethlehem in time for the, the birth. God's going to make sure that they get to Egypt, because it says, Out of Egypt I shall call my son. 
And how does he get that done? He has Herod try to kill all the babies. Do you know that God will make sure that you do what he wants done? You know, this is, this is the interesting thing in our life. We have a free will, but God orchestrates the circumstances that we will do what he wants done. Unless we're going to be really fighting against him. And this is so wonderful for us to know that God is on our side, number one. All, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens to us is for good. Now, note that it may not be for my good, but it is for good. Something good will happen out of everything that I go through. That is God's promise if you're his child. This is why when you go through hard times, your question should not be, God, why me? But God, what, what is it that you've got in store for me? The world will ask, why do bad things happen to good people? There are so many things wrong with that statement from a biblical point of view. There are no good people to begin with. We're all desperately wicked in our heart. Even when we're a Christian and we seem to be doing good, God will reveal to us how wicked we are. So the real question is, why do good things happen to all of us bad people? And that is God's mercy and his grace that he allows good things to happen to us at all. Mary and Joseph are sent by Rome to Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born in Bethlehem like he's supposed to be. And you go, because this kind of tells us that they had no plans to go to Bethlehem. They knew that, the, the, that she was pregnant with the Messiah. I would hope that they knew that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem there should have been a move to Bethlehem long before she was ready to give birth. So God made sure that it happened. How many times are we disobedient to God? How many times have you been? I know I've been, I've been disobedient many times and God has still put me where he wants me to be. God does what he wants to do. He is sovereign. The question is, do I go willingly? Or do I get drugged there? <laughs> by God, you know, getting sores on my feet as my heels are dug in, falling flat on my face as he's dragging me with the chain, or do I go there willingly? We have a choice in front of us to do it God's way willingly or fight, fight him. Now, I have fought God, believe me, I, I know I have fought God many times in my lifetime. And the worst thing about it is, because I'm a husband and a father, when I fought God, my family suffered. So this is something for us to understand. We do not suffer alone when we're in disobedience to God. I can almost imagine this trip with, with poor Joseph and Mary. She is very pregnant, and I'm sure she made Joseph know that she was not enjoying this trip. Yeah, we like to think of her as being this perfect person, but she was like every one of us. The caravan would try to cover 10 to 20 miles a day. That was a long walk if you're in good condition. It's a really long walk if you were nine months pregnant. And those of us who've had been around a pregnant wife, we know the complaints that could go on when, you know, it, you know, uh, when they're not feeling good and that uh, stomach is protruding so big and, and all of that. 
It was not a fun trip. <laughs> Why? Because they weren't where they were supposed to have been in the first place. And God said, you're going to get there. And they, it says that they get there. They go to this. And it says she was great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished as she gave birth. Now we have this picture through all of our Christmas stories of Mary and Joseph going around town, knocking on all the doors to find room, room in here. Well, the problem is that's not what the Bible tells us. When it says the, room, the word in, it means guest room, and it was probably the guest room of the family's house. He was going to see family. The only problem was, so was everybody else in the family going to see family? <laughs> all right, so they got there after all the rest of the family did, and there was no room in the family's houses. And so they most likely ended up downstairs because in, in Jerusalem and those in, in Judah, Israel in those days, your houses were generally two stories. The first story is where you did your work, had your workshop and your animals came in on the cold days and would have been called a stable. The second floor had your dining room, your bedrooms, and then the top floor, which would have been the roof, you just lived on. You, you, you had many activities up there. And in that second story would usually be your guest, guest room for your, your guest coming to visit. And we have to understand in, in the Middle Eastern culture, Israel and all of Middle East, and even to this day, if somebody knocks on your door, especially family, and you take them into your house, you were responsible for taking care of them. So you would have, the, they would get the best bedroom in the house. They would get portions of the food. And even if it was your enemy that knocked on your door at night, they were brought in and everything was to be peaceful during the time that they were there. So we have this little town of Bethlehem. All of the foreign relatives are coming into town. Everybody who lives elsewhere. And we go, well, why does this happen? Well, in the Jewish tradition, because God gave them their land, and this is from Exodus 25 and Deuteronomy 19, the people were given land, and they weren't even allowed to sell their land forever. Right? So if you owned a piece of property, your tribe, your family owned a piece of property, and you needed, to, needed money and you had to sell your property, it was sold for seven years. At the end of seven years, it was given back to you. Now, we don't understand that, but that is the way God says, I own the land and I've given it to the people. It is their inheritance. We see this in the story of Naboth when Ahab tries to buy his property and goes, no, I can't sell my family's inheritance. And then Jezebel makes sure that Naboth dies so that Ahab can get that property. But this was the case in here. Joseph, even though he did not live in Bethlehem, had property in Bethlehem. Now, did he have a house or anything? We don't know. It doesn't, apparently not, because he didn't go to his house when he got to Bethlehem. But he had family property. So he had gone to the family, and the rest of the family was having to come back to the family. <laughs> and they're going, there's no room. Even though she's so pregnant, she would not, they did not have room for her. And we have all these stories about poor Mary. She, she gave birth in a, in a stable. There was no family, no, no uh, nurse, midwife, and all these things. You know, no, there was family there. Was it close family? No. 
But it wasn't so long ago in most of the world, you did not go to the hospital to have a baby. You had the baby at home. Your mother was probably the one that helped you the most, and they would, if the midwife or doctor could get there fast enough, they came and helped. She went, they went to their home. There was family there. Was it her mom? No, apparently it wasn't her mom. Otherwise, there's no mention of her mom coming with her. But there would have been family, some aunt, some cousin, somebody with her. She didn't just go through this completely alone like we have our stories out there. Why do I want to do this? I want us to make this a human story for us. We, we have mythologized Jesus' birth so much over the years, and we have all these stories. We, we have a, a way in a manger, you know, where Jesus never cried. Well, you know what? He was a baby. He got hungry. He cried. He got wet. He cried. You know, uh, he was a regular human child without a sin nature. There is no way he spent his whole life and never cried once. There's no way that he spent his whole life and you know, had no, no issues that needed to be dealt with. We need to humanize him because he was human. Yes, he was God. And this is hard for us to understand. The, the fancy word is hyperstatic union, where God and man were brought together into one unified uh, individual. He was 100% God, 100% man. And we can't even comprehend what that means. Because in our mathematics, we would go, okay, God and man makes him 50-50, and that was not true. He was 100% each. If he wasn't 100% man, he could not have died for our sins. If he was not 100% God, he could not live a perfect life to be able to die for our sin. He had to be complete in both. And we don't understand, you know, we think about this, and we sang, I can only imagine, and we don't even know what heaven's going to be like. You know, we picture the best things that we can think of. And yet, everything we think of is tainted by sin and our sin nature. Heaven is going to blow away whatever concept you have of heaven. Now, the, God tries to describe it to us as the streets of gold, precious, precious minerals, precious this, singing, worship. Whatever you can think of is not even close to what heaven's going to be like. It is going to far surpass everything. To me, just the idea of worshiping God is a wonderful thought. You know, one, thing, one thing I disagree with on, on the song we sang is forever worshiping him. And yes, that is true, but worship is not going to be what we think of. It's not, me, it's not going to be us forever just standing around the throne of God and worshiping. Now, I think that'll be fun for the first million or two million years, but, you know, after that, there will come a time when, okay, what's next? What's next in our worship? And this is why you'll note that I will say when we're studying the Bible, we're worshiping. When you're sharing the gospel with people, you're worshiping. You know, you should be worshiping even when you're at work, if it's a, even if it's a secular job. Or you, is God somewhere in your mindset and being focused on or is he only being focused on during your prayer time, during your Bible reading, when you come to church? He needs to be part of your life 100%, 24-7. God is part of our life. 
We do not have a compartmentized God. He is not our God this morning at, in, uh, here on, on Sunday morning church. And as soon as we leave, okay, God, you stayed at church and now I'm free to do whatever I want because you're, 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 you're part of my church. We have to be careful with that because there are many people that say, all right, God, you're God on Sunday, but Monday through Friday, uh-uh, God, you just don't understand my business. You can't be, I can't, I can't follow your rules during the weekdays. And then they get home and go, okay, God, this is family time. You get to stay out of, you get to stay out of this. That's not who we serve. We are his servants constantly. He has rules for every part of our life. He tells us how to run business. He tells us how to run our family. He tells us how to have a relationship with him. He tells us how to have a relationship with government, with each other. He has everything. There is no uh, secular part for us as Christians. Everything is for him. And if it's not, we need to change the way we think. If I can't go to God and say, God, I'm running my business the way you want me to run my business, or I'm doing my job the way you want me to do my job, I have a problem. And I've known even Christian businessmen who have done really worldly things in their business thinking that God's going to bless it. Even though they know they're in contradiction to what God says. We need to make sure we stay in, in the way he, that he says to do things and then it says in verse 7, She brought forth, forth her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. Now a lot of people have made a deal that, you know, swaddling clothes. Uh, swaddling of a baby is coming back again you know, to wrap them tight, tight. It allows them to feel comfort and sleep better. And so all she was doing was what people for millennia have done. Wrapped her baby in nice tight clothing. The only big thing was that she put him in a manger, no crib. Uh, but manger is not that far from a crib in the first place. I mean, not once you put some straw and stuff in it, and the, there would have been just like any crib that they would have been, been deal, dealt with. Uh, so we want to think about this as we think about the story of Jesus. Look at the story and look at the words that God has said in, in the scriptures and, and don't get stuck with, all the stories that we have added to it over the years. These are wonderful stories. It is a wonderful story. God became a man. And he was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And just the odds of those happening are impossible because you don't get born of a virgin. The very first thing is an impossibility without God. And then the fact that he took Bethlehem out of all the cities of Israel. That would be similar to us saying that some individual somewhere in the state of Arizona gets pregnant and, and, and somehow ends up in chloride to give birth. And that it, was that it was predicted 400 years before it happened. Do you understand what this is? This is a powerful, just these two are powerful and that isn't even the beginning of all the prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus was born and we'll talk about prophecies sometime next month because we'll take a break from Luke next month when we get into the Christmas season uh, but we just want to understand the miraculousness of all of this I never counted how many villages there are in all of Israel 
I was told that there's about four or 500 to towns of any significant size, and that doesn't even count the villages because Jerusalem at that time was a village. So your odds are very small that the, that town just could have randomly been picked without God. We understand that God is in control. He knows the beginning from the end. He already knows, and this is the good news for us, he knows what's going to happen to me and to you tomorrow, this afternoon, next month, next year, 10 years from now. He knows exactly what's going to happen to us because he already knows the beginning from the end. And I love that because I might be surprised at what comes my way, but God is never going to be saying, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, he's never going to say that. Never, you're never going to hear those come out of his mouth. He knows everything, which is why we can trust in him. And if we just learn to surrender to him and his plan, it's going to be a good one. Because he is not making plans the way, way we do. Well, I think, I hope, I may, it might be, I really think it could be this, and this is the best way. God says, I have good plans for you. Our memory verse, he doesn't have plans for evil. He has plans for an expected end. He knows what it is. And people go, well, what if I get hurt? What if I die? Well, you know what? If I die, that's wonderful. I get to go to heaven. And I hope that's your mindset. You might think that I'm, being, I'm joking about that, but I used to tell people as a teenager, the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. You kill me, I get to go home. You almost kill me, I have to suffer, and then I still have to trust that it's God's plan. But you realize that even if we go through hardship, that's God's plan, and he has something good to come out of it. We may not see it at the moment, but there's something good that he's going to bring out of it. And it may be just that somebody else is encouraged by watching us go through suffering. That happened in my life. I had a period of a long period where I was on crutches because of my gout. And a year later, somebody said, I was encouraged by watching you stay faithful. All right, God, well, my gout wasn't for me. It was for them. But still, God got the glory. We do not know what God is going to do through what he does with us. We may not know till we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, there may be people up in heaven that say, I'm here because I watched you. I watched you be faithful to church. I watched you go through those hard times and you stayed faithful with God. You may never have even got to talk to them. You may not have been able to reach them. We've got all these boxes up here. How many of these boxes are going to reach somebody and then we're never going to know that person and we get to heaven and they're going, I got your box. I am here because of the box you sent to me. We do not know what God's plan is. We just need to be faithful to God. And so our challenge is to be faithful. Follow God in all that he does. Learn to listen to him and learn to surrender. That surrender part's the hardest part of our life, to surrender to God. Because God's got a plan. It's a good plan. And we need to be able to just say, God, I'm yours. I am turning my life over to you. I'm just surrendered. I am your servant. The servant does what the master says. 
And the servant can't, the servant might be griping behind the scenes, but he's definitely not going to gripe anywhere in the, in the, amongst the people and amongst the master. You know, and the biggest description we have in the New Testament is that we, Paul keeps saying, we are bond slaves for Christ. The bond slave was one who was voluntarily made a slave. I hope that's your attitude toward God, that you are his slave and you're his slave by choice. It's my attitude. I want to serve God for all that I have. I don't do it perfectly. You won't do it perfectly. But it's our attitude to serve him in all that he does. Lord, we just thank you for this, eve- this, this evening, this morning. We ask you to bless this time. Lord, for each person that's here, if there's anybody that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they will choose to follow you today. That they will look at their life and say, God, I am a sinner. I need you because I'm destined for hell. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and come into my life. And Lord, for all those that are in this room, we ask that today we will make a decision to be your bond slave and to serve you with all that we have. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.